0: thank you for that also in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, this morning, I do want to conclude our Strong Currents series with a brief look at a powerful current uh, that's pretty much unique to the church, but that has nevertheless had a profoundly negative impact on our whole society. So once again, just to get us focused and moving, would you stand with me, please, in honor of the Word of God? And just to get focused and moving, we're going to read or recite together, once again, Romans chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. Romans 13, 11 and 12, together, this is what the Bible says, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Now, as I mentioned last week, the impetus behind this particular series of messages is the urgent need for the church to wake up from its slumber. Now, I've got to tell you, most people, it's pretty clear to me, do not have a clue how much the Lord loves the church, and I know they don't have a clue because of the things they're willing to say about the church or write about the church, uh, whether with one another or, or, or wherever else, including, I am sorry to say, many people within the church. Now, the truth of the matter is the church is a mess, but it's the Lord's mess And he loves it dearly. The church is the family of God. The church is the household of God comprised of the children of God. And don't you think God loves his children? The church is the bride of Christ, betrothed to one husband, the Lord Jesus. And don't you think he loves his bride? Make no mistake about it. God loves His church. He loves you. And He absolutely intends to work through you to accomplish His glory and His pleasure. But for Him to do that in many ways right now, there is a need for the church to wake up. The truth is, at this particular moment, the church is a little bit of a mess, in need of a little house cleaning. A house cleaning in doctrine and theology, a house cleaning in its character and its walked out righteousness. We're saved, obviously, exclusively by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. But having been saved in that way, we're called and expected to walk every day led by the Spirit of God, exhibiting the love of and the goodness of God. And I believe God is absolutely committed to renew and restore and revive His church so that we do exactly that, to shape and mold and purify us, making us into the people He's called us and created us to be. I've believed that for many, 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 many years now, and I stand on it this morning. Apostle, Paul, uh, Apostle John wrote this about you in 1 John chapter 3, his first epistle. It says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. I want you to understand this morning that if you have been born again, If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are right now a child of God. This is who you are. What you will be has not yet fully been made known, but I promise it is awesome. You'll find out at the return of Jesus. If you're a Christian, this is who you are, and that's what you're looking forward to. So today, in the meantime, as you await that glorious day to come, today it is your duty and it's your calling to live in and for God, to purify yourself as He is pure, to put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light, to pursue the Lord, asking Him to work out of your life those things He put in your life when you surrendered your life to Him. To pursue the Lord and ask Him to help you work out your salvation, knowing that it's God at work within you. To do those good works that God has prepared for you to do. To let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and glorify the Father to demonstrate or show your faith in Him by how you live and what you do. Sometimes I fear that when people read the Bible, they import or assign to what they read things that aren't really there. So, for example, when people read the words, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, I suspect some people read that as if those words were written from an attitude of anger or disgust. As if God were saying to you, I am fed up with your sleepiness, it's time to wake up before I come and let you have it. But that's not at all the context of these verses. As I've mentioned before in this series, these verses verses fall in the the midst of a much larger passage in which the Apostle Paul is carefully instructing God's people how to live in this world, how to handle themselves in the day-to-day affairs of life, how to walk every day as those who love God and people. As a result, this call to wake up is a call to step into that life. That's what God's calling you to. He's not angrily throwing water on you, saying, I'm tired of you being in bed. He's calling you to wake up, to recognize the time, and step into the life He's calling you to. This call to wake up comes from the heart of God for you. To see you living day by day the life you were designed and created to live. Wake up. The days are evil. You need to understand this present time so that you're ready to handle its challenges and to make the most of its opportunities. Now, last week, we spoke a little bit about the concept of truth. We talked about the Greek word aletheia translated as truth in the New Testament how it refers to reality and that which lines up with and reflects reality. We talked about how there's no such thing as your truth versus my truth. That's just biblical nonsense. Now, which animal is the coolest animal is a matter of opinion. But that this animal is a cow is a matter of fact. We talked about how truth comes from God how it's determined and revealed by God, and we talked about how we live right now in a world at war with truth, a world that very often denies even the existence of truth. The truth is there is a crisis of truth in the world today. Universities tell us that cheating among college students is out of control. According to the Educational Testing Service, In the 1940s, 20% of college students admitted to cheating while in the university. Today, that number is 95%. What's worse, fewer and fewer students see anything wrong with it. A majority of students in a 2017 survey said, quote, it's no big deal, end quote, to cheat if you're not especially interested in the subject matter. And 44% of high school students say it is, quote, ethical, end quote, to cheat on homework as long as you don't cheat on tests. A 2012 study found that 60, this is mind-boggling to me, 60% of adults cannot carry on a 10-minute conversation without telling at least one lie. A study in 2006 found that 42% of Americans believe lying is sometimes justified. 10 years later, in 2016, that number had jumped to 64%, with 75% of millennials saying lying is often justified. 40% of people lie on their resumes, while 90% of people looking for a date online lie on their online profiles. And if you're curious, the average woman claims to weigh 8.5 pounds less than she actually does <laughs> in her online profile. You and I are living through a major crisis of truth, which means at some very basic level, as Christians, we are failing in our responsibilities. Paul wrote two letters that we know of to Timothy, a young pastor, a young man that Paul had loved and mentored and discipled for many years. In the first of those letters, Paul lays out for Timothy a number of basic instructions for life in the church. And at one point, pretty much in the middle of all that, Paul writes this. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Paul often wrote this way. He often wrote to say there is right and there is wrong. There is God's way and a whole bunch of other ways for people to live and handle themselves. And he wrote this so often to people in the church because the church is God's household. The church is God's family. The church is God's home, a place where He uniquely dwells. And as all of that, God, by God's design, has made the church to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church of Jesus Christ is called and designed to be that which upholds and points to the truth. God, not the church, is the source of truth. But God has tasked the church. God has tasked you and me with upholding and pointing to the truth, which means the crisis of truth in our day reveals a failure on our part to do that effectively. And I want to close out this series this morning by bringing into the light one of the most significant reasons I believe this has happened in the church, a powerful current impacting the church that's undermining our work and our witness in the world you need to understand right up front that most of the time currents that take hold of the church and begin to pull the church away from where it ought to be are almost always born and taught and passed on in the church sometimes by well-intended but mistaken brothers and sisters and sometimes by far less well-intended false teachers or false prophets. I've warned you before, I'll warn you again. You need to know well the people you allow to teach you. As Paul wrote to Timothy in his second letter. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. Having said all that, I want to take just a few minutes this morning to address what I believe may be the single most significant current dragging Christians away today in the church. It's a current that has pulled many way down the beach. They they, they haven't left the beach. They've not been swept away from the faith, but it's pulled them far from where they should be in the process. In the process... It's undermined the work and witness of the church in many ways. I'm talking about a prevailing, the current of a prevailing and excessive casualness in our approach to and our thinking about God. Since the 1970s and the 1980s, the church has focused most heavily on intimacy over reverence, on God's kindness over His holiness. This trend appears. In things like the intentional move away from, referring to the Lord by His title, Christ, and referring to Him exclusively by His name, Jesus. If you've ever had a conversation with my friend Marlene Howard, you know this is a a, a passion of hers. But actually, it's just one part of a much larger movement within Christendom that has been pulling Christians down the beach to places they ought not be for some time. An emphasis on the relational over what was often referred to as the religious. The personal over the impersonal, the intimate over the formal. Love for God over fear of God. And during this period of time, without a doubt, the Charismatic Renewal did a tremendous amount of good work to reawaken the church to uh, the relational and experiential realities of a bona fide walk with God reintroducing in the process many Christians to the very real person of the Holy Spirit. And yet, simultaneously with that good work, other shifts were occurring, not necessarily bad shifts. One of those shifts was a shift from holding church services uh, uh, in cathedrals or buildings with stained glass windows to places like gyms and storefronts. There was a shift toward jeans and tennis shoes and away from uh, one's Sunday best. These changes were intentional. And they were often defended quite reasonably, quite effectively, by pointing out that the original churches, the ones established by Paul and Peter and Barnabas and John, were composed of ordinary people, often meeting in their ordinary homes, wearing their ordinary clothes. But, and here's the key. The form really doesn't matter. We tend to focus on form when we fight over form when we get highly exercised over form, over chairs versus pews versus cushions versus kneelers, over this kind of music versus that. kind. We get, we get really wrapped up in the form, but the form is not the issue, but the form does matter because in some very fundamental way, the form becomes part of the message, Most people simply do not understand the power and the role in life, including in the Christian life, of things like liturgy and symbols and tradition and form and repetition and so on. Now, to be clear, there is nothing biblically wrong whatsoever with a shift from cathedrals to storefronts, from suits and ties to slacks and polos. But that does not mean, listen to me, the fact that there's nothing biblically wrong with it does not mean such shifts are without consequences. Cathedrals were not built to waste money, and they were not conceived in a theological vacuum. They were built very much on purpose to inspire awe and reverence for God. There's a basilica in Asheville, North Carolina, the Basilica of St. Uh, Lawrence. I don't know if you've ever been there. Melissa and I uh, love to go there when we visit Asheville, when we have the opportunity. The very first time we ever went to the Basilica of St. Lawrence, when we were hanging out, we had a long weekend in Asheville, just the two of us. And We got back to the hotel that night, we were talking about our day, and we were both powerfully struck by exactly the same thing uh, when we visited the basilica. The fact that the moment you walked inside, you immediately became very quiet. You began to speak in hushed tones even though nobody told you to. And that happened by design because the architecture of the building made you feel you need to be quiet, made you feel you should be reverent, made you feel awe. Now, let's be clear. Those are incredibly appropriate, incredibly biblical ways to feel when approaching God in worship. On the other hand, the storefront, by design, typically encourages friendly conversation and interaction. It communicates less awe and more community, less transcendence and more right now, right here, everyday life. The cathedral makes it instantly clear, this is not your dining room while the storefront does its level best to feel like it is. And when it comes to the worship of God, both are absolutely necessary. A sense of reverence and awe, recognizing the glory and the majesty of God and the true and holy fear of the Lord, and a sense of community and closeness and home. Recognizing that communion with God is meant to happen all day long, No matter where you are, my point is, there's nothing wrong with a storefront, and there's nothing wrong with a cathedral, but each of them communicates something about God, and what each of them communicates is only part of the truth. For a long time in our culture, the communication of the cathedral was dominant, which in many cases led to a certain stiffness. A certain sense of distance between people and God. Since the 70s and 80s, however, the communication of the storefront has been dominant. It came about largely as an intentional rebuke to the stiffness of earlier dead forms. But in many cases, it also unintentionally contributed to a su- substantial reduction in reverence and awe. A noticeable loss of the fear of the Lord, and a casual approach to the king of the universe that's unbiblical and, frankly, unseemly. Returning to the issue of Jesus the Christ, as with church architecture but of far greater significance, what is communicated about the Lord in the way we choose to refer to Him cannot be underestimated. Jesus is the Lord's given name, and it brings him to you as a person, real and touchable, approachable and knowable. It reminds of Jesus with the little children, Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus with John resting his head on his breast at the Last Supper. But Jesus is simultaneously Savior and friend and lover of my soul and Lord and Christ and Master and King. He is both God and man, like you and wildly unlike you. To emphasize one over the other is to stray from the truth of who he is. When John was allowed to see into heaven, he saw something like 100 million angels saying of this Jesus in a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. The tendency toward untoward familiarity with the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father was a natural but unfortunate progression of an intentional move away from the formal to the familiar in worship. From riveting, pounding hymns that extol the greatness of God to more personal songs and choruses that strive for greater closeness to Him. I like a lot of contemporary worship music, but I also like some of the choruses from the 70s and a lot of the hymns from the 1800s. One of my favorite things about Stephanie Hill is she'll whip out something from any era of the church. Every, one, day, one day, I'm, I'm confident she's going to bring up Gregorian chant here. <laughs> but I love that because she knows how to worship the Lord. She knows what is communicated about God in those various forms and styles of music. And all of them matter. And it is only with all of them together that we get a fully understanding of the Lord if they are saying something true about God then they have a place in Christian worship and they help us together know God for who he really is but when one emphasis becomes the more or less exclusive emphasis whether the emphasis is intimacy or awe or when the two are pitted pitted against each other. The unavoidable result is a disordered church with a distorted view of God, a church which at its best can only offer the world a distorted view of God and of the gospel. A church lacking in the holy fear of the Lord can never inspire such fear in the lost. A church that only sees Jesus as bud will never get the world to see Him as Lord. Dropping Lord and Christ from our regular references to Jesus has impacted our understanding of the gospel, whether we've recognized it or not. The notion of a personal relationship with Jesus, a phrase which you will not find in the Bible, has supplanted the biblical call to surrender your lives as obedient children and live as submitted followers of Christ. The idea of hanging with Jesus has replaced the clarion call to follow, honor, love, worship, serve, submit to, and obey Him. And yet, according to Jesus Himself, we make disciples in large part by teaching them to obey everything He's commanded. Here's the bottom line. A church with a distorted view of the Lord cannot present him accurately to the world. At one point, I'm sure there really was a need to correct a church that had sunk into stiff, distant, lifeless formalism. But the current that is sweeping most Christians away today, the current that needs to be named and renounced, is the current of hyper-casual, hyper-laid-back informality, a false sense of intimacy born of a false impression of God. Because the truth is, the closer you really get to God, the more awe and fear you will experience. I have to remind you, when the Apostle Paul saw the glorified Christ, he did not run up and give him a high five, and he made no attempt to rest his head on his chest. The Bible says he fell at his feet as though dead. Yes, by grace through faith in Jesus, God has become your loving Father. But the Apostle Peter plainly exhorts, if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear, during the time of your stay on earth. The church must be restored to God and the purposes and the glory of God. We must resist the powerful currents at work trying to shrink God down to size. The powerful currents at work in the church trying to reduce the king of kings to old buddy, old pal. We must be renewed in the fear of the Lord, recalibrate our lives around His will, and live up to our great calling as the pillar and foundation of the truth. Please, please do not miss the staggering implications of this. No matter how much you have gotten wrong, God in His mercy and grace has still appointed you to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. And this morning, he is still calling you to represent him in the world as his exemplars of the truth, the pillar and foundation of the truth. That's who you are. That's who you are. By grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that's who you are. That's what you're called to. You are called to so much more. This is who you are by the will of God. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Ask the Lord to show you where you have potentially been carried down the beach and how to get back to where you should be. Are you too casual about God and the things of God? Do you conduct your life in reverent fear as the Apostle Peter exhorts you to? Do you take your own sin seriously? Do you laugh about it and excuse it? Do you strive in faith every day to put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light? Is your view of and approach to God overweighted on the side of intimacy or the side of awe, on the side of love or the side of fear? Is the gospel you present through your life an accurate reflection of who God is and of why he sent Jesus? And here's part of the glorious good news of the gospel. Anywhere you've messed up in any of those things, God simply invites you to tell Him so. to come before him and say, Father, I missed it. I, I missed it. I have been too casual. I have been uh, uh, too fearful. I have been too whatever goes in the blank. Will you please forgive me? And the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of God will be present right there in that moment to wipe away whatever it is you've gotten wrong and to set you back on the path he has for you. Tell him you want to get it right. Ask him to lead you into his truth. God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. He wants you to wake up to the truth. He wants you to love and fear him. He wants you to spend yourself on him and his will and to represent him well in the world. Let's pray. Father God, uh, once again, as always, we thank you for the power and the clarity of your word. And Lord, in that, we are dumbstruck by the reality that you have called us in love and compassion and grace and mercy to be the pillar and foundation of truth in the world. To take the truth that you are, to take the truth that you have shared and to hold it up and point people to it. Lord, you've entrusted that role to us, knowing everything about us. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your compassion, for your kindness in calling us into your work. Forgive us, Lord, where we've been too casual with you. Set us on a solid footing with you and use us for your glory and pleasure we pray in jesus name